Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with the people at the very top of their game. Today I'm joined by Barry McIlhenny. Barry is a giant in the magazine industry. After a brief spell working for local newspapers and Melody Maker, and being in a punk rock band, aged just 26, the temptation of pop music overwhelmed him and he was appointed editor of Smash Hits, my favourite magazine as a teenager. Following that, he was appointed launch editor of the film magazine Empire, and that took over as my favourite magazine and indeed still is. He became managing director of EMAP Metro in 1994, where he turned FHM from a tiny circulation magazine into a huge success and created yet another favourite of mine, albeit a guilty one, Heat magazine. Returning to management as chief executive of EMAP Elan in 2000, he oversaw the launch of Zoo magazine in both the UK and Australia. Today, Barry is chief executive of the Professional Publishers Association, the organisation responsible for representing the UK magazine industry. Barry, that's quite a quite a CV. That, Thanks for joining us. That guy us. sounds really good. Who, he sounds who is awesome. That guy? It's you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that sounded really impressive, actually. Um, yes, I mean it's a long time. It's been. Uh, Are you knackered? I am a bit knackered. Actually, it's, I was just thinking on my way here. Uh, that's about thirty years I've done. Uh, so you can probably work out how old I am. But I did start very young. I was a child bride. Uh, I did. Uh, <laughs> start uh, delivering newspapers in Belfast at the age of 14, which wow. seems a long time ago. Well, newspapers still exist, but only just. Well, yeah, that's what, that was my first ever uh, introduction, actually, to the wonderful world of media, because I grew up in Belfast uh, and literally didn't know anybody in the media. I, I wouldn't have known what the media was. Um, and getting a paper round, I suppose, age 13, 14, was probably the first uh, introduction I had to this, you know, amazing world that has, uh, that has opened up for me. But it certainly was not uh, on the cards that the 14-year-old young Barry McElhenney in Belfast would have worked in the media. But do you, were you already thinking, I'd like to be a part of this? I'm interested in newspapers um, generally. Yeah, yeah, I suppose I was, actually. I mean, I, I, the one subject I was quite good at at school was English. Um, I always enjoyed reading which I think is fundamental if you want to be a, a journalist or, <laughs> yeah. or work in the media in any shape or form. You have to learn to read before you can learn to write. So I always enjoyed that. And, and I suppose the big thing for me was aged about 14 or 15, the NME entered my life um, and I started consuming avidly, uh, voraciously, uh, the New Musical Express, which, which looking back on it now, I was going through this uh, astonishing sort of purple patch mm. with fantastic writers like Charlie Murray and Nick Kent and Tony Parsons and Julie Burchill. And, uh, and I just became completely obsessed with it. And I think from that point on, if I'd been able to articulate it, I would have said, that's what I want to do. I, I, w- I want to be one of those people. You want to be without a having any, Yeah, without having any idea of how you do that. What came next then? How did you, how did you get into that then? Um, I started writing letters to the NME uh, and I started sort of copying their style, which, which looking back on it, is, is, a, is a very strange thing for a, for a 15-year-old boy in Belfast. Quite a clever thing to do, actually. To do. And they started printing them um, incredibly. You know, I now realise that actually that was, that, was, that's, uh, that was an incredible sort of miracle that, you know, the letters got there. This is all prior to email, of course, and that they, they chose to print them. Uh, and that went on for about a year, actually, and I was getting all these letters in. As BMAC Belfast, um, <laughs> and and then you know, then I suppose that gave me a taste for it. But then the normal uh, distractions of teenage life um, took took over, girls and music. films and music uh, and and various other things. And I suppose to some extent, I put it away for a while and uh, and got on with school and uh, 
But it never that that bug, uh, and that incredible sensation of seeing your name, e- even if it was just B. Mac Belfast mm. in, a, in a in a in a paper in a magazine, particularly for me, the NME, was just indescribable. Uh, and I suppose to some extent, I I was always going to try and recapture that. It is like a validation, isn't it, when you see a byline? It's incredible. To this day, to this day, I still get a a thrill. I mean, I don't know what that says about about my ego, but I still, after all these years, and it doesn't matter what it's in, to see my name in print still gives me a buzz. I do as well, if I'm honest, and it kind of gives you, it it distinguishes you from just a bloke in a pub, you know, waxing lyrical to someone who's worthy of publication, as it were. And you can understand why it flatters your ego. Yeah, I think there's a large sort of part of validation in it, isn't there, in some way, which, uh, and maybe that, maybe without going too deep on the uh, analyst's couch here, maybe that, maybe it's something to do with where I grew up and what was going on at that time, which is Mm. clearly not a a particularly uh, pleasant pleasant environment. That I don't know, like an escape or something into this fantasy world of, of the enemy which they created. I, I managed to get to university, which is not that common a thing for that part of Belfast. Uh, and I started the student magazine. Uh, so I suppose that shows that you know it was always in there mm. um, with another guy, and you know it was the typical kind of student rag. And then when I left university, uh, I started trying to write for the music press. I so I tried to make that ambition come true. And was that as a freelancer at first? How did you do it? Were you sending stuff in on spec yeah. or what? Yeah, I mean, that was a freelance. That was as a freelancer. I mean, I had a proper job, so to speak. I was working in a library. I was the world's most unlikely librarian, looking back <laughs> on it. Uh, and I, I actually became a sort of assistant librarian of a, of a library in Belfast. And That's you know, not on your LinkedIn profile, I noticed. It's not on the LinkedIn yeah. profile. You're right, actually. I must recognize You should add that, that on. It's one of those classic sort of forks in the road where, I mean, I could have quite seriously gone down that road. We, you know, would be nothing wrong with that. And now I presume be, you know, a librarian and be and be living in Belfast. Mm. Well, the good thing for me about working in the library was it gave me the time to to work out that actually I didn't want to do that, and it gave me, of course, access to unlimited books and magazines, mm. um, all of which I devoured. And I started uh, sending reviews off on spec to the NME, to the Melody Maker, to Sounds. These are all the sort of giants of the music mm. press in the 80s would be up to it by now. Um, and also to the Hot Press, which is an Irish magazine, mm. still going strong to this day. It is um, indeed. Which is sort of like the Irish enemy, I suppose. So how did Melody Maker end up hiring you? Because uh, I think the, 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 the USP, if you want to call it that, or the unique advantage that I have, and I think it's it's important if you're a budding journalist to try to work out something that you've got that nobody else has got. What I had was I was in Belfast and and, and at that stage nobody else was doing that and bands uh, would open up their tours in Belfast because they felt relatively free from, mm-hmm. from uh, inspection. There was no press coming with them. So quite often a band would open its, show, open its national tour in Belfast and I would send in a review of, you know, Spandau Ballet or status quo or somebody or Depeche Mode uh, to one of those or all of those uh, organs and kind of incredibly um, the hot press initially uh, said would you like to be our Belfast correspondent which which is just incredible Um, So the answer was clearly yes The answer was I'll bite your arm off yeah and of course as I say without sounding too much like an old codger because there was no email and no mobile phones I mean that would involve typing up the review for the night before, taking it to the post office, 
you know, putting it in, a, in an envelope, sending it off to the hot press, Incredible. and then just sort of waiting, to, waiting for the magazine to come out. And I started doing this regular column for them. And I remember they rung me. I'm still working in the library at this point, and they rung me uh, at work. Uh, I must have given them my number, and they said we would like you to go uh, to London for the weekend to interview Squeeze. Um, oh. And I, you know, this is how sort of innocent I was. That's I Jules said, Holland's old band, isn't Jules it? Jules Holland's yeah. old band. And I said I'd love to do that, but I but I haven't got any money. And they said no, 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 no. The record company pay for all of it. I said. What? <laughs> Let me just put these library books down and walk out of here forever. And I didn't realise, you know, this was world, which may not be the same now, but this sort of golden era of record companies ferrying you around the country. And I went to London and stayed in a very nice hotel. It was the first time I'd ever been in London. Interviewed Squeeze, you know, wrote it up. Uh, Hot Press printed it. It got fairly prominent coverage. And I was kind of off and running. Uh, and then to cut a long story short, Melody Maker noticed this stuff in the hot press and they did a similar thing and said would Watch, you like yeah. would you like to start writing from Belfast for the Melody Maker and eventually I ended up coming to London and working for the Melody Maker How long were you there for before you went to Smash It's and also um, we were we, we were always a kind of closet pop fan Well um, I was on Melody Maker for two years I mean the, yeah I probably was I mean I was probably to the to the left or to the right whatever you put it of, of the real hardcore Melody Maker mm. uh, people I was always quite interested in pop music because um, you couldn't describe it as a light journal, could you? It didn't no. really have a light touch. No, I mean, I tended to do... There was a section at the front of it called Talk, 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 which was a sort of gossipy um, section. I tended to do that. And, and, and I think, again, just luck. I mean, luck plays a huge part in serendipity in all of these stories, I suspect. Because I was Irish, uh, there was a band called The Pogues who Never were just starting off. I mean, you know, nobody had heard of them at this point. <laughs> and I, I, I think... Again, looking back on it, I think the rest of the Melody Maker staff, who were all a bit older than me, just thought, I can't be bothered with this band, you know. And I was asked, did I want to go to uh, to Germany um, with the Pogues for a week? Now, you've got to remember, I'd been working in, in a public library about mm. six weeks prior to this, stamping people's books. So, again, it didn't take me very long to say yes, please. Did um, you leave the library quietly, as you ought to have done, or did you kind of kick up a fuss and kind of dramatically throw a few books on the... On the I'm, I'm interested in this. <laughs> well, I wasn't banged out. There's a tradition in, in the media, of course, particularly in newspapers, that you're banged out by all the sub-editors hammering the desk. It was a bit. It was more appropriate to the library. You sort of whispered out very quietly, boss, yeah. bye, shells, yeah. bye-bye, don't come back. Um, and I went off to Germany with the Pogues, which, you know... At, at 24 years old or whatever, was an experience that imagine. I will never forget. Uh, and I, I sort of became, not close to the Pogues, but became, I suppose, their writer because they were on the way up. Yeah. I was starting to get published. We had this connection of, you know, we're all Irish. And it kind of took off from there. And I've stayed there for two years. Uh, and then, again, to cut a long story short, Smash Hits, who were published by a company called EMAP, who was very much the sort of up-and-coming publishing house of the time, um, rung me up and said, we need a new editor. Would you like to come for an interview? And I went and did this disastrous job interview. Genuinely, I remember going home to my girlfriend at the time in London and saying, well, that's that. I'll never hear from them again. Yeah. For some reason, I don't really understand to this day, I wouldn't have hired me. <laughs> they um, they got in touch and said, yeah, you're the editor of Smash Hits. I was like, oh my God. And why do you think that is? Because what did they see in you that from your writing that maybe you didn't see in yourself? Because being uh, an editor is much more than being a writer, to state the obvious. I suppose I don't really know is the answer. I think it may have been something to do with the previous regime there and they wanted a complete change. You know, there's always an element of, of, of sort of 
politics that will never fully understand about this. You know, I think there'd been a, a, a quite a strong group in before that who were leaving and they wanted to completely change it. You know, it's probably one of the generational shift because mm. I was 26 or whatever. You were a young and I think they maybe wanted some of that energy, you know, that, that that I probably had then. And and beyond that, I don't really know. I mean, there was a guy called David Hepworth, who's a bit of a legend in the magazine industry. And yeah. I think really it was him. And he took a he took a flyer on me. And I guess he was there in case it went wrong. He was like the kind of editorial director. And I, I started there. I can still remember October the 20th, 1986. How many uh, years were you there for? It was not. I was there on the hits for nearly three years. Wow. During which time it exploded again, you know, without sort of playing myself down. I mean, I think I did a good job and I had a very good team around me, but there was a a sort of an explosion in a certain type of music at that time, which was Mm. Kylie, Jason, Bross, Brother Beyond, Curiosity Killed a Cat. And Smash Hits, by the end of this period, was selling a million copies of Fortnite, which I know seems uh, ridiculous now, looking back on it. So one million copies, you know, every two weeks. Quick, uh, at that age, though, how quickly did you kind of think that this was normal? There must have come a point where you adjusted to it and thought, yes, I'm the editor of the, one of the most successful music magazines there is in the world. You, yeah, you did. Uh, you did. I mean, I was aware, I was aware quite quickly of the uh, influence and the kind of the power, I suppose, you had because of that phenomenal readership um, and at the time there weren't that many other outlets so you know if you were a pop star basically your ambition was to get into smash hits and be on top of the pops mm. there were you know there weren't all these other TV channels or uh, platforms of delivery as we now say so you could, you could I suppose if, you, if I'd wanted to I could have turned into some sort of demanding you know diva I suppose insisting upon this that and the other the truth is you were so busy mm. uh, producing you know what was quite a bit it was about a hundred and six pages and an average issue every fortnight Mm. in the days before desktop publishing. My memories of it are just working intensely hard, quite late, Mm. never really going anywhere. I mean, the days of going to Germany with the Pogues were gone. You were sort of a mixture of a travel agent, uh, a football manager. um, I was going to say, because I work with with some people who you would think have quite glamorous Mm. lifestyles, but the reality of it, behind the scenes, is a lot of it is just hard graft and long nights and... uh, it yeah. is. I, I mean, mean, how it, glamorous was it in reality? Well, I mean, it's not working down a mine uh, and it's not, you know, it's not working in the library. I mean, it clearly is one of the best jobs you could possibly have, particularly, uh, uh, you know, at that age. But it is not, I think, what people imagine it to be. It's, mm. it's not <clears throat> endless parties and, you know, champagne and there's a bit of that. I was going to say, there must be some champagne. There's surely. a bit of that. There certainly is a bit of that. I mean, I met Michael Jackson. You know, Michael Jackson was brought over and he met, I think, six journalists at a dinner and I'm one of them. You got to go to what are now the Brits, what were then the BPI Awards, you know. And you, you was, I mean, you would occasionally be taken to New York to do something. By and large, my memory is sitting in the office, uh, having the time of my life, uh, with an incredibly talented, creative, young bunch of journalists. Mm. And I think what I realised was this is what I want to do. You know, I, I, I don't actually... The, the, I love the writing and I love the being on tour a bit, but I kind of done that. What I love was running magazines, editing them, building teams. And EMAP, the people who published it, had this wonderful philosophy, this mantra, which was, you're only as good as your last issue, which was a fantastic kind of discipline. I mean, it was a real mm. pain. It kept on your toes. Yeah, so you would do an issue and you get the sales figure and they go, that one sold 1.1 million. But the attitude was, well, the next one might not sell anything. So let's do it even better. A kind so of healthy fear of failure, really. Absolutely, was drummed in you. So I got used very quickly to that, that sort of discipline. The only downside was because of the sheer scale of the job, 
and the kind of relentlessness of the cycle, by the third year, you're pretty burnt out. You're knackered. Uh, and I have got to that point. And also, I suppose, by that point, I'm nearing 30. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wondering whether to put Jason or Kylie on the cover or mm. Bross. And then I'm going home and listening to Van Morrison and Bob Dylan. There's a slight mm. dichotomy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do think it's a job for a younger man. Uh, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I like um, doing what I do now, which I'm sure we'll come on to, which is it's a kind of an appropriate role, you know, to become a little bit of an elder statesman. I wouldn't want to mm. be editing smash hits and, and, and probably probably not even Empire, much as, much as I love. So what happened was I, I finished my time in the hits, passed the baton on to the next lot who are, you know, coming through. Mm. Um, and again, you know, was asked... A magazine called Q had just been created. The idea on a bit of paper was let's do a film version of Q. Mm. Let's do the movie version of Q. And the managing director of the company said, you know, are you interested in films? And I said, you know, I like going to the cinema. Uh, I don't know anything about it. And he said, that's perfect. Uh, That's what we want. Because at that time, film magazines tended to be, if there were any, were produced by people who were sort of obsessed with the oeuvre of a particular director, and their the favourite film was always Citizen Kane, which you know. actually is quite a good film. But which I agree. is not a bad film, but it's know, not my favourite film. The thing I like about Empire is it's written by people who like going to the movies. No disrespect to Philip French and people like that, yeah. but there's a lot of film critics out there that seem to not like movies. Leonard Maltin was another one. You'd read his columns and he would just slag every film off. And I said, "Why? Are you, I would think, why are you even doing this? Well, you know, it's clearly was... there's a few turkeys every so often, but film's yeah. good." No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that was very much the manifesto of Empire. There was actually a manifesto. There was a, there was written down uh, on, a, on a piece of paper a manifesto, uh, which finished by saying Mov- movies can sometimes be art, but they must always be fun. Uh, and that's a totally different attitude for a film magazine to take. And uh, and at the time, there was a, there was a review that was in Time Out, which has changed an awful lot since then. Absolutely. Now it's gone free. And it described the film as difficult to dislike. And we saw that and thought, that's what we don't want to be. Because, you know, you're going in there sort of hoping to dislike it. But actually, What was the film? I can't remember what the film was, but it was quite difficult to dislike it. Whereas our whole attitude was, we're going to go into this hoping to love it. Yeah. And we'll be slightly disappointed. It's like actually. the food we, critics that say, not undelicious. It's yeah. exactly the same yeah. thing, isn't it? So we were like, we, were, we approached it with, um, you know, our job here, and it is, it is a function, is, mm. to, is to make sure that the people who might buy this magazine go and see the right thing on a Friday night that they will enjoy. There was a kind of popcorn. And the fact we called it movies rather than film was quite important. All of that said, it was a bit of a punt. And we only agreed to call it Empire at the last minute. It was going to be called Limelight at one stage. Um, and we got it away... This is only about four months after leaving the hits, and um, and it it went okay. It wasn't an overnight success. For me, it was it was an incredible uh, time because, for one thing, you had to go to Hollywood mm. every three months. Um, so never, was this more glamorous than the this hits? This was more glamorous yeah. than it. Yeah, Smash Hits was was hard work. So the top name at Hits was Michael Jackson, but you, I hope you're going to list a litany of stars now and <laughs> well, give, I mean, dish the dirt. The, 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 the most astonishing one, I think, was I went to the Oscars, you know, which, which saying that, I mean, I, I realise... I, I get bored of going now every bad. year. <laughs> I'm thinking it's of not, not going bad. next year. I think I might wash my hair. Um, so I went to the Oscars in 1990 at a time when, I mean, it was still the Oscars. Was that Dances with Wolves? Who, who won Best Picture? It was Dances with Wolves uh, on My Left Foot, I think, the Daniel Day-Lewis movie. 
And mm. I remember standing, you know, on the red carpet. And again, it wasn't the, the red carpet was not quite the way it is. It wasn't full of people asking you who you're wearing, or mm. it was, you know, it was the Oscars, but you had plenty of room and plenty of access. And I stood there, and you know. And here they come, you know, Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. Were you starstruck or were you trying yeah, to maintain, maintain some semblance I of being journalist? I tried to maintain a semblance of some cool, but actually you're standing over your mouth hanging open because particularly if you're not of that world, to to go and see those people coming past you and stopping and having a chat with you, if you say, oh, I'm Barry from Empire, I kind of vaguely heard of it at this point. Mm. I ended up at a party with Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, joining in a chorus of Danny Boy with, you know, who I then found out to be Harvey Weinstein sort of leading the singing at the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's like somebody kind of pinched me here. So, I mean, Empire was a lot more glamorous also because Smash Hits was largely a UK thing. Mm. I mean, it had people like Michael Jackson, but there was a massive UK scene. Whereas at that time, uh, films were still largely an American thing. So you had to spend a lot of time in Hollywood. I went to the Cannes Film Festival every single year for... 10 years probably. Um, I went back to the Oscars in 91 then realised it might be not a very good signal to send out to the staff that the editor goes every year I should probably let some of them go. Mm. Um, every third year, that's what I do. Every third year let one of them go. <laughs> Spread the wealth a bit. Yeah, and, and during this period sort of around 91, 92 the thing started to take off and we went from selling uh, you know, 50,000 a month to 100, 150 Phenomenal thing about Empire, because all of these other magazines have closed. Mm. With the exception of the NMA, I think every magazine I've mentioned thus far has closed. Mm. Not Empire. Empire's just celebrated its 25th birthday, selling more than it ever sold. Bigger probably than it's ever been because it's of amazing. all of its I genuinely, I think it's my favourite magazine. I love, I, I get the iPad edition. And in fact, the, um, I think it was a couple of episodes ago when you had the 300th issue when you had a kind mm. of retrospective and you were in the room with all the other yes. previous editors. I really enjoyed that article. Well, that was the, um, that was the 25th birthday issue. The amazing thing about Empire, it's a bit like Liverpool Football Club. They've had very few, when they were at their peak, very few managers. So Empire's only had seven editors, I think, in 25 years, which on most magazines, you'd be through about 15 by then. And incredibly, those seven are all still with us and all still talking to each other. I think partly because the baton was always passed on internally. So you always had sort of investment in the next person making it work. There was never an outsider brought in. Uh, and they got all seven of us together. Uh, we in the Soho House. We did an article, you know, round table for the magazine, and then very kindly they invited us all of us to the twenty fifth birthday awards with Tom Cruise and Schwarzenegger, and you know it was a bit like reliving my Oscar experience from twenty five wow. years earlier. The difference now being not only have they heard of Empire, mm. but they want to be at the Empire Awards. So the the power of the magazine over the twenty five years is massively. Rowan. It's uh, part it's of probably the, movie the biggest go- film magazine in the world, actually. Oh, I would say so. And it's it's part of the movie-going experience. You, it's not just a mere magazine, I would say. Now, you go there for all the reviews, the gossip. The tone is just perfect. It's, yep. a, it's just slightly humorous, yep. warmth, but also not, not afraid to be serious when necessary. And, and it's not overly fawning. No. I mean, that was very much the manifesto. I think it stayed true. The other, the other thing that's changed, of course, is you now have a British wave of directors and actors quite a lot of whom grew up reading Empire. Mm. So you don't have to have that conversation I used to have, which is, oh, it's a film magazine, it's called Empire, it's British, uh, with a PR in Hollywood thinking, what is this? You're now, you know, the Empire staff, some of whom I still talk, you know, keep in contact with, are now dealing with Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and, you know, Ewan McGregor, all of whom grew up reading Empire. So you're sort of in the world. And now that 
good and bad. You know, that, that's great because you get access, the fabled access. Mm. But you never want to lose that slightly detached, outside, irreverent look at that, a look at this strange, peculiar world, which is, I think, is, was the heart of what the magazine began as. So that I did that and, uh, and then, then moved into management. Why? Uh, largely financial, <laughs> is the honest answer. Sit and dangled a larger check I, in yeah, front of you, is that what it was? I'd been doing it, f- I'd been writing and editing in this stage, so let's say, for, I don't know, 15 years probably by this point. And I sound like an old footballer now. I just missed out on on the big money when the ed- editors now, you know, a lot of editors are quite big name editors mm. and actually get paid a lot of money. That wasn't really the case. Uh, and therefore, the idea of becoming a publisher was quite attractive. It wasn't just that. I also, I think curiosity is a really important, uh, probably the most important characteristic for anybody who wants to... Presumably you needed a new challenge, though. I mean, yeah, you'd edited the hit. You'd, ed- you'd yeah. launched Empire and grown it into something amazing. I think. Yeah, and well, I was curious to find out what a publisher did uh, and what, you know, what a manager did. Um, and yeah, and I suppose I was... I was Are slight, you able to tell us? I was probably, <laughs> no, I never find out. I, yeah. I was probably slightly knackered as well. And I'd just had a kid. I just got married and had a kid. So a lot of things were changing. I thought, yeah, maybe it's time to sort of move upstairs. I mean, the great thing about about it and about email at that time was actually, even as the publisher, you were still very involved in the creative process, but you were also responsible for you know, all these things that you never think about as an editor, the costs, mm. the paper. The, the desks, health and safety manuals, pension contributions. <laughs> yes, all of that. Legal liabilities, exactly. And funnily enough, I quite liked all that stuff. You didn't have your own lift, did you, like Anna Wintour? Didn't have my own, no. I missed out. I missed, I missed out in that golden period. And then, of course, you get a more holistic view of publishing, and then I just sort of got really interested in publishing. So I'd moved from sort of writing to editing to to then, you know, running part of EMAP, EMAP Metro, which was the London lifestyle division, so Q and Mojo and FHM and Empire. And um, and FHM was a, was a critical part of, of, of all of that because men's magazines suddenly became the thing mm. um, towards the sort of mid-late 90s, this would have been. And, and internationally, that became a thing as well. So then the other great thing is uh, they said, hey, would you like to go and you know, run the French division or would you like to go and launch this thing in Australia? Do you, you say, may we? May we, monsieur. <laughs> um, so I did that for a while and ended up doing it in South Africa and Australia. So, so you end up you know, having this astonishing journey Literally, you know, going to different cities. It must have um, felt like an adventure even at the time, because even looking back on it, it just sounds awesome. Yes, it was. And I, 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 yeah, I mean, again, as with Smash Hits, your memories are twofold, aren't they? They're, they're like any job where you sort of remember, you know, it's quite hard work and you've got people to deal with. It's always I hate problem. people. All that. Um, salary increase negotiations and... But yeah, of course, you also at the same time occasionally pinch yourself and say, this is fantastic, I should get paid to do this. Don't tell anybody, but I'd do it for nothing. Mm. Don't tell them that when you're going for the salary negotiation. And I think somebody said once, you know, if you, if you find something you love, you never work a day in your life. That's kind of how I feel and I've always felt, which is I managed to, I managed, you know, to, to end up doing the one thing I think I can do. Not being modest there, you know, I, I've got... Uh, sort of an awareness that I think I might find other things like a lot harder. I like doing this. You know, I seem to do it pretty well, okay-ish, and, uh, and you get paid for doing it. Happy days. 
did it feel kind of more risky when you relaunched FHM? Because you'd had, you know, you'd done well with Smash Hits, you'd done well with Empire. Did, you felt, oh God, this this might be the one that it's going to be a spectacular failure. Or were you, did you think, all right, I know enough now to know what works and what doesn't and I'm going to apply those principles. What was your mindset at the time? Um, I, the FHM is a slightly more complicated one because there were a lot, there were, actually there were other people involved as well as me. I mean, Smash Hits and, and, and Empire, there were teams, but I was heading it up. FHM, I suppose, as the, as the overall manager of the company, you've got people mm. like I once were on it. Uh, but you I, hired those people. You had yeah, to select them and make yeah, sure they're the right I, people. And I felt very confident in those people. Um, on FHM, we we sort of had a dummy run. Loaded had launched uh, about six months prior to, to the acquisition of FHM. So FHM was a magazine called For Him, mm. hence FHM For Him magazine. And having seen the success of Loaded and having realised it would probably take us about a year to get our own thing off the ground, we thought, let's buy this other thing, turn it around really quickly. The discipline there being, you've got to get it out every month. You can't, mm. you can't sort of fanny around. It forces you into action, doesn't it? It makes you do it. Uh, and of course, the myth is that, you know, we instantly stuck a woman in the cover and everything worked. That's not actually true. I mean, those covers had Harry Enfield on mm. them, Chris Evans, Steve McQueen, always on a men's magazine. It was cover. a great magazine. For me, in a, you know, a guy in his mid-twenties, it was a fantastic... Oh, yeah. I used Hopefully. to look forward to it, absolutely. And the prevailing wisdom at the time was you didn't put a woman on the cover. I mean, don't ask me why. It was just one of those many publishing myths that was very hard to crack down. And, and I still remember to this day, we put Liz Hurley on the cover and we'd been selling, let's say, 60,000. And, you know, the circulation guy comes in and goes, we've sold 130,000. You think, what? You know... But, but again, uh, then, the tone was right because Loaded, I felt, was too laddish and slightly yeah. over, well, overly objectified women, if you could call it that, as a, in the sense of because you guys still had pictures of female celebrities in bikinis and so. On, but there, there was a there was a respect for them. I felt that it yeah. was quite mature. That I that, tonally for me was what I wanted. Yeah, I mean, Loaded, Loaded I think, was aimed at a slightly sort of edgier. Uh, more out there bloke, you know, whereas FHM was it was he and fairly kind of regular guys who, you know, had a girl maybe had a girlfriend or certainly liked to have a girlfriend and and would go down to the pub. But yeah, but yeah, they weren't it wasn't that extreme. It was quite it was quite an affectionate magazine, I mean mm. it was quite warm. Um and of course became this runaway success, as did Loaded. So there's this sort of huge period in the nineties, but like sort of blur oasis where mm. you had Loaded and FHM duking it out. Uh, what FHM did that Loda didn't do was went worldwide very quickly. So, I mean, it, at one point it was in about 52 countries. Uh, and I remember going to an FHM convention, believe it or not, wow. in Thailand. Uh, and it was like the Olympics. All of the FHM teams would come in carrying their flag, you know, from <laughs> FHM Ukraine, FHM Lithuania, FHM Mongolia, FHM America, a huge Incredible. group of people. Um, and march in and, and we'd spend a week, you know, in Thailand, allegedly planning a strategy for world domination, actually, as you can imagine, having a very good time. Did Felix Dennis come afterwards with his kind of globalisation of Maxim? How, what, Felix or, or... was very clever. Felix, God rest his soul, was very clever. Felix launched uh, Maxim in the UK and, and clearly FHM was number one and Maxim probably became number two. Mm. And then... He launched Maxim in the US before FHM in the US, but essentially launched FHM. Mm. So he launched the mainstream, regular mag, which, which of course put FHM in this terrible position of having to become sort of something and else. too in its own, own image. To itself. And never really recovered. I mean, truthfully, we can say that now, looking back on it. And Maxim became this astonishing success in America. FHM probably worldwide would have you know, been number one in most territories. And do you think that was just because traditionally, you know, as Felix is, you know, he was more agile and just had that burning desire to yeah. get there? 
Yeah, I think I think I think the bigger the company gets, and at this time, EMAP was getting quite big. The harder it is to move instinctively, you know, it had become almost impossible to do what we did with Smash It's an Empire, which was you know, do one and then do another one four months later. You become subject to focus groups. There's more money at mm. stake. You know, you want to launch it with a ten million pound advertising budget or whatever. And so, therefore, the the bet becomes that much bigger. You get and kind of weighed down by the corporate treacle, don't you? It's very difficult, yeah. And by this stage, EMAP will become, you know, sort of behemoth of publishing. So in order to get something off the ground, particularly in America, which is, you know, ten times the money, whereas Felix, I guess, being a private individual, could just take more of a fast decision and say, yep, let's do it. I'm a massive fan of Heat magazine and... Um I think, again, tonally, it's, it, certainly in the early years, it was quite almost like smash hits, I thought. There was a real sense of fun and energy and dynamism, and, you know, I thought that was uh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think you can trace a, a sort of a lineage through all those magazines, because a lot of the same people were involved in them, myself included, you know, from, from the hits right through probably the next 20 years through the zoo. Heat was actually launched uh, as, a, as, a kind of, as a British entertainment weekly, so a lot, a lot of a lot of us were reading Entertainment Weekly and thinking we need a smart entertainment magazine, and of course it was a complete disaster. People forget this for about the first year, and was indeed was probably six weeks away. I would say from being closed, uh, and and sometimes that can focus can focus the mind as you can imagine. What did you get wrong? I think what we got wrong was we launched it as a, as an entertainment magazine for couples, so it was aimed at sort of twenty something couples. I remember doing the presentation and it would be, you know, the kind of couple who, when they move into their flat, the first thing they do is rig up the stereo. I mean, that dates it, obviously. <laughs> but you know those kind of people, you know, that, those are the, before they put the curtains up, they would, they would rig up, you know, whatever the equivalent would now be. And I think launching unisex magazines were incredibly hard. I mean, we knew that, but we thought we could do it. Maybe there was a little bit of hubris involved. Hmm. And what happened, of course, was by turning it into a celebrity magazine for women, that's quite a different proposition. And mm. almost overnight, a la Liz Hurley on FHM, the figures uh, exploded. And suddenly from selling 60,000, you're selling 400,000. Uh, I went through this incredible purple patch. The truth is, by this point, I was not that involved with it because I was moving on to the men's titles and FHM and what became Zoo uh, worldwide. But Mark Frith in particular, as editor of Hate, had that kind of golden decade, pretty much, mm. early 99 to 2009. And again, a bit like Empire, I mean, Heat may not sell quite as many as it did, but the brand of Heat, through Heat Radio and Heat World, the website, and, you know, through its Twitter feeds and its Facebook pages, has this sort of astonishing footprint. Uh, the magazine in its print form sells less than it did but that that's a fairly common story last quick question before we move on to what you're doing currently yeah. which is that when you set up zoo how does it work how do you get an idea for a magazine do you think right okay we're going to have a men's magazine but it's going to be more cheeky and and slightly different tonally how, how does it work do you or do you do the focus groups and then react to them or do you come up with a product and then put it to the focus uh, groups? that's a good question actually i mean zoo was quite zoo was quite unique the the big thing with zoo the big the usp with zoo was it's weekly mm. So that was the big battle, really, internally and, and, and externally, was will men buy a weekly magazine? And believe it or not, at the time, there was quite a lot of... Uh, uh, there was quite a strong view that they wouldn't. And, and, of course, my view and the view of a couple of other people who were centrally involved was they're only not buying one because there isn't one. Mm. If we give them one, they'll buy it. There was a little bit of they build kind of Steve Jobs, come. Steve Jobs kind of approach. It's, yeah, it? and it's a really frustrating experience to go through, you know, because you sort of feel you're banging your head against a brick wall. 
And then we did two years, pretty much, of focus groups would be giving it a rather dignified title. We sat in a pub, upstairs in a pub in Richmond, southwest London, for two years with a different eight blokes every Wednesday night. And we we did half and half in answer to your question. We had probably half the idea and we would test it with these guys. And then we would say to them in the last half hour, what, what, are, what other sort of things do you want in it? And they would say, you know, lots of really gruesome accidents. Yeah, yeah I always of, remember that. Lots of... <laughs> Lots of conspiracy theories about you know JFK or whatever, uh, and you would through that sort of hybrid of the, what they liked and didn't like about what we what we presented to them and what they pretty much universally would say this is what we want. We created Zoo, and then of course bizarrely at the same time, IPC the Oasis you know versus the Blur were mm. creating um, Nuts, and the two magazines launched at the same time, which on the surface you'd think would be a disaster, but actually was an incredibly uh, good thing because mm-hmm. it boosted the market and it, it, it got past that weekly thing because it's like the two biggest companies in the in the country are doing it. They must be right. And it became a sort of phenomenon. Now, both those magazines have tailed off to the extent that Nuts closed a few months ago. Although again, you know, which takes me into the current thing, they may well have declined on their print version, but, you know, they're still reaching quite a lot of people through all of the other platforms. Tell us about what you're doing now at the PPA. Well, uh, I suppose uh, to use a football analogy, it's a bit like you know. So you go from being, you know, from being a player and scoring a few goals and, and a manager, and I'm now in this equation. If I tort- stretch this analogy, Trevor Brooking, I suspect. So I now run the association, the equivalent of the FA. Um, so all of the magazine publishers, uh, all of the ones I've just been talking about, about 220 in total. Um, are members of the Professional Publishers Association, the PPA, as it's colloquially known. And and my job, and the the 20 or so people who are there, is to essentially represent magazines to... To who? I mean, who's out to get you? all sorts of constituencies. The government. uh, So I have to, you know, be a little bit grown up and put a suit and tie on and go and speak to the government about all sorts of things to do with the regulation of magazines, particularly Mm. in light of phone hacking. To advertisers, so yes, of course, individual publishers will talk to advertisers, uh, but they need to hear it at a, quite a high level about why magazines, rather than radio or TV, particularly in the current digital world. To retailers, similarly, to students who may wish to be pursuing a career in uh, magazines. I was talking earlier; we accredit eighteen universities with a sort of PPA stamp of approval, which is incredible quite significant, Mm. Um, and to the general public, I suppose, ultimately. And then all of the members, all of the 220 members from IPC through to EMAP and people we were talking about earlier, have all got their own demands. So it's trying to sort of coordinate. I mean, the the, the strap line, the equivalent of the magazine strap line is promote, protect and advance PPA. Um, And it's promote, protect and advance the interests of, 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 of anyone who would consider themselves to be a magazine publisher. And that definition is changing all the time. I mean, listeners, I'll have to take my word for this. You're not an old giffer, clearly. So what's next for you? You're, a, you're still a young bloke. What's, well, what's next for you? I mean, there are two things, I think. One, if, um, if, some, if somebody said to me, you need, you're going to have to spend the rest of your days at the PPA, I'd actually be quite happy with that because I love the job. It feels uh, natural. You know, as we touched upon earlier, I don't really want to be editing uh, a teenage music title. You've done it. I've done that, and I think a 25-year-old should do that. So it's one of the few jobs in media where, to some extent, the older you get and the more experienced you get, the better, rather than the opposite in media, which is normally you're kicked out by the time you get to 34 or whatever. 
Secondly, if somebody came along and said, you know, here's an amazing job, you know, doing, I don't know, I can't think what it would be. It would have to be pretty amazing. Ever been tempted to go into politics? Funnily enough, I would never have said I'd be interested in that. But actually, the part of the job that surprised me the most probably is I do quite enjoy the political side of it. Political both in terms of our dealings with the government and political, I guess, also in the sense it was 220 competing publishers as your membership base. You have to tread quite a a diplomatic line, and the medals only take you so far. Yes, it helps, of course, that most of them would know who I am and, you know, have some acknowledgement of, you know, got quite a good career, but that only gets you so far. You know, if you if you start to, to get it wrong or to favour one lot of people over another, you know, you soon get yourself into difficult. trouble. It's very difficult. So I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't think I'm perhaps cut out for the... Westminster world. Should I, I speculatively register Byron McKilhenny for PM.com? Well, you could do. I, I suspect you might be wasting your money. I could but sell it back to you, you in 10 years from now. You could sell it back to me when I'm looking, <laughs> I'm, I'm hobbling around looking for a job. Uh, I don't think I'm interested in part, sufficiently interested in party politics. I'm really interested in promoting media within that magazines, literacy, uh, all the things that you need to, to, to consume and to produce you know, quality, as I regard it, editorial, which I think finds its most sort of beautiful form in a magazine. Barry, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to take you through this swashbuckling adventure of, you, of your career. I know, we've been, we've been chatting for ages. I've really, really enjoyed it. So thank you very much, Barry. Thank you very much. A Big Things Media Production. <laughs> Big Things! <laughs>